the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. My ancestors did not own slaves. At least as far as I know. And I think if they had, someone would have told me, Grandma, somebody would have told me. I think it makes me better than Robert O'Rourke, also known as Beto. He admitted on Twitter a couple of days ago that his ancestors did own slaves. This was after Amy McGrath, who had just announced that she was running against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky for senator. This was after she let it be known that Mitch, who was opposed to reparations for slavery, is the descendant of slave owners. Beto's been out there on the campaign talking to dozens of people, that is, uh, get, with people you know, following on the trail there, and he's very much in favor of reparations. So in a tweet, he said this... Uh, something that we've been talking about in town, town hall meetings, the legacy of slavery in the United States, now has a much more personal connection. I was recently given documents showing that both Amy, his wife, and I are descended from people who owned slaves. And then he wrote this on uh, Medium. I was recently given documents. Show, you have to uh, picture him gesturing really, really hard as he's, as he's saying this. I was recently given documents showing that both Amy and I are descended from people who own slaves, along with the other possessions listed in their property log, were two human beings, Rose and Eliza, a paternal great-great-great-grandfather of mine, Andrew Cowan Jasper, owned these two women in the 1850s. There are also records showing that a maternal great-great-great-grandfather, Frederick Williams, most likely owned slaves in the 1860s. I benefit from a system that my ancestors built to favor themselves at the expense of others. The only in, That only increases the urgency I feel to help change this country so that it works for those who have been locked out of or locked up in this system. So this is where we are. Uh, while the House of Representatives, uh, while we speak, is involved in a big fight over uh, whether the president should be censured for what Democrats and, of course, the media say were racist remarks about four idiotic congresswomen, are we allowed to call them, by the way, freshman congresswomen? Anyway, uh, their first year. And, and we're now going to be checking everybody, uh, checking their family tree. And we want to make sure that you know, if they if they find out if they're related to anybody who owns slaves. Interestingly, interestingly enough, Kamal Harris, Kamala Harris, her family actually did own over 100 slaves. So this is all going to have to be worked into the reparation formula. It would only be fair to have the actual descendants of slave owners pay for reparations, or at least they should be made to pay more. And, of course, we'll have to have a government commission to determine how many slaves your ancestors owned and how much you should be charged. And, of course, there would have to be laws in place to prosecute anybody who tried to, you know, scrub the family tree. And we could also work out a formula, you know, that would allow the descendants of slave owners to pay reparations to the descendants of men who died in the Civil War. I mean, you know, they fought the war because of the slaves that they owned. I think it was around 360,000 uh, men who died fighting for the Union. Meanwhile, uh, Chuck Schumer came out, I think just a little while ago, in favor of reparations, which means that by the time the election gets here, whoever the Democrats nominate for president will be in favor of reparations. Now, that probably won't be Robert O'Rourke. He's polling at zero right now, which is right where I'm polling. Uh, and when we come back, we're not going to talk about Beto O'Rourke. We're going to talk to the co-author of the number one book on Amazon, and it's all about the Kavanaugh hearings. Remember those? Stick around. Recent storms have done a number on Pittsburgh homes and businesses. This is John Steigerwald. If you've had damage to your roof, windows, siding, or gutters and downspouts, you may be eligible to get them replaced or repaired free of charge. All you have to do is visit WindowsRUsPittsburgh.com for a free inspection from one of their highly trained appraisers. With over 50 years in home remodeling, Windows R Us is the area's premier exterior replacement company for roofs, siding, gutters and downspouts, doors, and, of course, windows. If damage isn't your issue and you just want something new, 
You'll love their no-pressure approach, no hidden fees, and one of the fastest turnaround times in the industry. Why pay twice as much with other companies? Visit the area's premier exterior replacement company at windowsrspittsburgh.com. Mention STAG for an additional 10% off at windowsrspittsburgh.com. That's windowsrspittsburgh.com. Windows R Us, proud sponsor of the Jerk of the Week, heard every Friday right here on the John Steigerwald Show. windowsrspittsburgh.com. Miracle League of Moons, Mike McGulloch joins us. Mike, how's the new field house coming? The building permit was issued. We have the majority of the earthwork done, and they should be pouring foundation pads in the restrooms over the next week or two. Those restrooms are really going to make a big difference for athletes and special needs, aren't they? The ability to be able to use a restroom has always been difficult. You see how little space there is or little accommodations are made for individuals with disabilities, but it's something that we can make a little bit easier for everybody. From the field house to the ball field to the playground, it's really going to be state-of-the-art. It will be updated with ramping systems and different things so that individuals that have problems with their mobility will be able to get to the same spots that everyone else that easily can get to. And every dollar you give goes directly to the project. Our board is funding all the administrative costs, so any donation from anyone goes directly to the construction of the field. Let's make miracles happen. Give today at miraclesinmoon.org slash donate. Sponsored by Robinson Town Center, a Zamias Properties entity. The John Steigerwall Show, AM 1250, The Answer. Hey, remember the Kavanaugh hearings? It's been almost a year since the country was put through that spectacle. And there's a new book out now that tells you all about just what a spectacle it was. And it's number one on Amazon. It's called Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. It's co-authored by Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino. And Molly Hemingway joins us right now. Hey, thanks for being here, Molly. It's great to be here with you. So what was the, uh, you know, this? we all lived uh, through the whole Kavanaugh fiasco. Uh, and then you had to dive back in for the book. And I'm just wondering... What was the one piece of information that you found as a result of your research and, and, and the, the process of doing the book that you found most surprising or shocking, maybe something you didn't know until you got into it? There were so many days where I would come home after interviews or, or researching with my co-author, Carrie Severino, where I think, I just can't believe, I can't believe that just happened. Uh, we interviewed more than 100 people, including people at the White House, throughout the Senate, Supreme Court justices, uh, people close to the Kavanaugh family, the Blasey Ford, uh, the Blasey family, um, and we kept on getting what I thought were some really interesting behind behind the scenes details. Uh, I think a few things come to mind as being particularly noteworthy for for me, including that uh, learning about the level of coordination on the left for that organized opposition to Kavanaugh, including how protesters were secured, brought out from various states, had their flight, you know, paid for, had training, had bail, um, had bail posted, uh, that learning this wasn't just a completely organic situation, but that had, there had been levels of coordination. Uh, also learning that the situation with Kavanaugh was very um, uncertain until the final vote, including that on the day of the reopened testimony, reopened hearings, when after Christine Blasey Ford testified, a Republican senator on the Senate Judiciary Committee actually went to Senator Susan Collins, who's a moderate Republican whose vote was considered up for grabs, and suggested to her that they both go to the White House and encourage the president to pull the nomination. And she explained to that wavering senator that she would like to hear from Judge Judge Kavanaugh before she made such a decision. Wow. And so you, you talked to over 100 people. Um, how many of those people talked to you on the record and how many off the record? And how hard was it to get people to talk to you either way? We actually had very little difficulty getting people to speak with us. That's kind of how the book came about. There were a lot of people that I had met through covering the Kavanaugh confirmation process or that my co-author knew who thought they had really interesting stories to tell and didn't particularly feel like telling them to other people who were writing books because those other people, whether they're at the, you know, at major newspapers or otherwise had been part had been part of the anti-Kavanaugh uh, process, so they just didn't feel like they should tell their stories to people who had been part of the opposition. So the, the access was uh, 
on the, you know, for, for many people it was actually fairly easy. The conditions were in, were frequently that they would speak freely with us. They would give us a lot of information and access to documents, but they would frequently be on background. Some people did acknowledge their work with us, such as President Donald Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, Senator Charles Grassley, who heads the Judiciary Committee. But, uh, you know, particularly when you're talking about, we spoke with several Supreme Court justices, they're not in the habit of <laughs> putting their comments on the record. Right. And other people who just, uh, who were, who were pretty sensitive about that. I didn't believe, uh, Christine Blasey Ford, starting with her first sentence. And I, I'm not exaggerating. I, the, the first, I mean, the first 20 seconds of her testimony, I, I decided I wasn't going to believe anything she said, just based on just her demeanor and everything about it. It just seemed so phony to me. Did you ever believe her story when you were following this as a reporter and before you were, you know, thinking about writing a book? Well, as a reporter, I kind of don't automatically believe anybody's story. I wait and see what they what they say to back up their claims. There's that old adage in journalism that if your mother says she loves you, that you need to check it out, and you want to make sure you have sourcing for it. So I was struck by the lack of substantiation for the story. The allegation was made. There were four people who were claimed to be witnesses to the event where it happened. All four of them denied any knowledge or memory of such an event. One of them was actually a lifelong friend of Christine Blasey Ford and, uh, you know, did not want justice did not want Judge Kavanaugh named to the Supreme Court uh, as a liberal and and uh, wanted to support her friend. She was absolutely horrified when she first heard the story, thinking that she had not been a good friend in high school. And as things continue on and she gets time to piece together her summer and whatnot, she actually remembers the summer quite well in detail and does not recall anything matching uh, Christine Blasey Ford's description of events. So I think the standard you're supposed to go with is presumption of innocence, and then you wait and see if evidence ever comes to support an allegation. And she was certainly given quite a bit of opportunity to support her allegation, um, including a nationwide televised hearing. Uh, but not only was it not there, there were things that seemed to cast doubt on her story, including, you know, uh, re- revealing that her claims, such as her fear of travel, her fear of flying, was not borne out by her practice of flying regularly, including to Pacific Islands, or her claim that she needed two doors because she had to deal with this trauma. She said she put two doors on her house, and it turned out that the other door was just for the, uh, for the, for the unit that they were renting out um, in their house, you know, so there were there were reasons why you might not take her to be as credible as so many people in the media apparently felt she was. Oh, she was, yeah, and, and that was part of the "Believe Everybody" uh, campaign back in in at that time, and it's, it still exists to some degree now. But I, I think she may have done damage to that. Do you think so? Absolutely. It's, oh no, and that's one of the things that's so horrific. Not just about her, but you're getting hearing so many stories by the end, these outlandish claims of Brett Kavanaugh, a federal judge running a serial gang rape cartel oh, that roamed Montgomery County. Um, it does a real disservice to people who are victims of sexual assault to make allegations um, that are frivolous, and some of those people were referred for criminal prosecution. Uh, it is important that we take sexual assault seriously. It's also important that we take due process seriously, and that just because you make a claim against a man does not mean he is guilty. Um, and you need to evaluate evidence. So many people seem to just put politics ahead of that standard that we have. We're talking to Molly Hemingway. She, along with Carrie Severino, is the author of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. Um, Molly, uh, I, I'm, I get the feeling that the non-Fox media is have not been beating your door down to get you to come on and talk about the book. I just... Uh, uh, a feeling I have. Yes, we. The book has been topping the charts at Amazon, topping Barnes and Noble, and we have somehow managed to do this without any uh, coverage from from the corporate media, um, much of corporate media. And it is interesting because it's a newsbreaky book. We have all this access to. Uh, we're covering the story that was the biggest event of last year. Mm-hmm. But there is a notable lack of interest from many people in the media. Well, and I, I saw. That your book was number one on Amazon, and the lunatic who, the last lunatic who accused Donald Trump of sexual assault, um, I forget her name now, I don't have it in front of me, E. Carroll, somebody or other, um, she was uh, 3,124, and she had, they, they, they had a tent for her pitched in the lobby of CNN and MSNBC. She was on so much. She had the 3,000th rated book on Amazon. 
Right. It does seem that there is a there's a narrative that needs to be set, and if you support that narrative, you get plenty of you know televised interviews, and uh, that if you are reporting news and telling stories that contradict that narrative, then you will not get the coverage. But it's really unfortunate because we wrote a book that is you know really for a general audience mm-hmm. and tells exclusive and never before released details about you know, Justice Kennedy, how he was able to secretly retire from uh, from the court without anybody knowing it, uh, how what the Kavanaugh family is doing, how they escape out of their house without any. That these fights that are happening in the Senate anteroom, the Senate Judiciary Committee anteroom, where fist fights nearly break out between senators. So, if you're interested in newsy, well-reported, yeah. thoroughly researched stories, it is a great book. I by my, I it myself. <laughs> so, tell me about the fist fights. Were they were they both the same gender? I hope. Yes. Yes. Um, so things have deteriorated on that Senate Judiciary Committee that summer, and it gets so bad that this was the day that uh, Senator Flake negotiates an additional week for yeah. an FBI review of, of Judge Kavanaugh. Um, but as they're negotiating it, he and Chris Coons are huddled in a phone booth in this tiny room. Other people are in the bathroom trying to call the American Bar Association. The rest of the senators on the committee are all um, fighting in this room. Their staffs are there. Their senators are trying to kick out their staffs. Senator Whitehouse has spittle flying over a staffer. Senator Cruz accidentally steps on one staffer's feet. It just is absolute chaos. And everyone we spoke to said it was the, the craziest thing they've ever experienced in the Senate in their careers. Wow. Uh, and getting back to um, uh, Christine Blasey Ford, I think this was an interesting part of your uh, story. She scrubbed her social media accounts before she sent that famous letter to Diane Feinstein. What did she scrub? Did you were you able to find that right. out? We did, we talked with a lot of people who know and actually like her. You know, these are lifelong friends that known her from childhood, and they were telling us that she had a very active Facebook where she posted quite a bit politically. She's extremely anti-Trump, as so many people are these days. Some people described her as as having a crazy political uh, Facebook page. Shortly before she not just sent the letter to Diane Feinstein, but um, before she. You know, one of the first things she did was actually called the Washington Post tip line. And prior to that happening, prior to even his, um, you know, to his nomination, her, uh, or, you know, just at the same time that's happening, her Facebook page was scrubbed. And uh, it was a, it was a really thorough scrubbing of her political work, uh, which apparently was noteworthy among her friends. Wow. And, and so that, that again uh, shows how orchestrated the whole thing was and how well planned out it was. Uh, from the Democrat side, um, and it's amazing. Um, so, was the plan always to use the? Well, before I ask you that, was there was there ever a point that you find where Kavanaugh gave any serious consideration to packing it in? No, I think he was he was very determined to make it to a final vote. He was steadfast. So was the White House team in general that's managing the process. They never wavered. And neither did Senator McConnell nor Senator Grassley. However, there were many other people who were wavering, and he was also getting contradictory testimony from his advisors. He came out of the Bush administration, and people that we spoke to would would refer to the Bushies were telling him to do this, and the Trump people were telling him to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Bushies were telling him to be meek and um, you know, to be sympathetic or to to acknowledge to talk about uh, how much he loved women and how helpful he'd been to women, and to talk about Blasey Ford's bravery. And the Trump people were more saying, "You should just, you know, you're 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 being accused of serial gang rape, and you're, you know, you've got newspapers saying you can't be around children. You have to fight. You can't just take this and act like it's completely normal and acceptable uh, way to fight a Supreme Court nomination." And eventually, he of course does take that. Um, well, he, that was actually his instinct, too, but he takes that advice to, to heart, and we saw that in the reopened testimony. And you write in the book that the um, the the Trump people had stuff on, that they knew about. They had stuff on uh, Christine Blasey Ford that they could have used, but they didn't. Uh, they could have they had, had. They could have. They could have really uh, torn her up pretty good. They had, they had, they were receiving a lot of information from people who were saying that the story, her presentation in the media was at odds with what they knew. So was the Senate Judiciary Committee. They were getting a lot of 
uh, reports from people saying, you know, just telling stories about her past and whatnot. They knew that if they were to discuss those things, they would be accused of uh, of harming a victim of sexual assault. And in the media climate, which was so rabid at that moment, almost a mob-like media mm-hmm. climate, they knew they couldn't really use it, and they did not. Um, and and yeah, they did not for the entire process. So, um, how? How much of this, this, the the stuff that the the Trump people may have had, or that the Republicans may have had and didn't use, how how much did were you able to find out from the Democrats? Uh, did any of them admit to you? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Did any, any of them admit to you that they knew it was a, an orchestrated fraud that they just had to go along with and they they had no choice? Well. <laughs> There, not not on the um, sexual assault allegations, although it was clear they were, you know, coordinated and yeah. part of a public relations campaign. But they have been fairly honest about the orchestration involving the overall effort. Um, people are taking credit for organizing the protests, the riots, uh, flying in protesters, you know, paying their bail and whatnot. So, uh, and that was we did a lot of research and reporting of things that are not already public, but that was actually something that they were they had no shame about that they had participated in that part of the process. Do you think the Democrats ever really believed that Brett Kavanaugh was a, an actual sexual predator? I, I I can't speak to their personal feelings. I I think that it was a very difficult case for them to make, given that he had this long record. Uh, an absolutely stellar reputation among Democrats and Republicans, left and right, had gone through six background checks. Um, I, I don't, I don't, uh, but I, I, who, who can know? I mean, it's, it's hard to say. The important thing is that we as a culture remember that when allegations are made, that you do not convict someone or decide that they're guilty without evidence to support that allegation. And that's true for all people. That's a lesson not just for Supreme Court nominees, but for all people throughout society, um, you know, rich, poor, etc. We'll be back and finish up with Molly Hemingway, author of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court, right after this. Stick around. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. Senators heard about social media censorship today. Google Vice President for Government Affairs and Public Policy Karan Bhatia insisted Google is objective in presenting information to users. So let me be clear. Google is not politically biased. Indeed, we go to extraordinary lengths to build our products and enforce our policies in an analytically objective, apolitical way. But Dennis Prager's Salem talk show host says they're not objective. He's suing Google-owned YouTube for restricting access to some 10% of the videos from his popular Prager University. There is no hate. There is no extremism. It's simply that a conservative group has issued these. We have uh, three former prime ministers, four Pulitzer Prize winners giving our courses, and they still put, uh, put us on the restricted list. Prager is one of the speakers at the hearing. This is SRN News. Morning Bullets is asking for the public to respond to a nationwide poll that could help shape political policy in 2020. This is your chance to be heard by the decision makers all the way up the chain. Their question, should the federal government provide free health care to illegal immigrants? Yes or no? Visit trumpspulseonamerica.com to let your voice be heard before the decisions are made for you. Medical services are guaranteed by the Emergency Treatment and Active Labor Act and require hospitals to provide care regardless of citizenship, legal status or ability to pay. The Federation for American Immigration Reform reported that medical expenditures for illegal immigrants was over $17 billion in 2017 alone. The decision is up for debate and the policymakers want to hear what the public thinks. Should the federal government provide free health care to illegal immigrants? Yes or no? Go to trumpspulseonamerica.com now to vote. That's trumpspulseonamerica.com. trumpspulseonamerica.com. Be heard. 
She's listening all the time and getting smarter every day. When you want the conservative perspective on today's most pressing issues, Alexa has the answer. You just have to point her in the right direction by saying, Alexa, enable the Answer Pittsburgh skill. Now say, Alexa, play the Answer Pittsburgh to get your favorite conservative talk station without lifting a finger. Look, Ma, no hands. So, Alexa, what's your favorite station? That's easy. AM 1250, the answer. This is Jay Hagerman of Abernathy and Hagerman. Upon your passing, you wouldn't want a judge to decide who raises your children or how your estate gets divided. It is important to review your estate planning documents to ensure they protect what matters most. At Abernathy and Hagerman, we will work with you to establish an estate plan that nominates a guardian for your minor children and that your assets are used for your family's benefit. Judge for yourself. For legal help that lasts a lifetime, visit a-h.law. Community Bank, City Mission, Number One Cochrane, Highmark Stadium, Peters Township Community Center, Angelo's Restaurant. What do all these businesses have in common? Nello Construction, design and build with one company. Nello Construction, full service construction from the ground up. Renovation, expansion, Nello Construction, the choice for business. See the projects, begin the journey at NelloConstruction.com. Right now, save $500 off a beautiful new Pella entry door. We have hundreds of entry door options to transform your home, create exceptional curb appeal, and add lasting value. An array of glass patterns, from traditional to contemporary, can give you just the right amount of light and privacy you need. And Pella's exclusive Advantage Plus system protects your investment from damaging weather. Get $500 off right now or 48 months no interest. Call 888-78-PELLA or PellaPittsburgh.com. Do you or your business have financial problems? Are you overwhelmed with debt? Then call me, Attorney Dennis Spire at 412-471-7675. My legal practice concentrates on bankruptcy law, debtor rights, and tax matters. I have over 30 years' experience as a former United States Department of Justice bankruptcy attorney and lawyer in private practice. I have represented thousands of cases faced with financial problems and lawsuits. Reorganize and get a fresh start. Call 412-471-7675 or visit my website at DennisSpira.com. Stuck in traffic? We've got the answer. On the Parkway West outbound, watch out for an accident at Campbell's Run Road. On the inbound Parkway West, it's every green tree to the Fort Pitt Tunnel. Very busy as well on the Parkway East outbound. You will see some delays from Boulevard of the Allies to the Squirrel Hill Tunnel. Inbound, some volume, Forest Hills to the Tunnel and 2nd Avenue to the Fort Pitt Bridge. Slowing down also outbound over Liberty Bridge. That's a look at traffic. I'm Jenny Robinson. AM 1250, the answer, weather. A shower thunderstorm will be around for the evening hours tonight, otherwise mostly cloudy and muggy with a low of 72 degrees. Tomorrow will stay rather cloudy. It'll be humid with highs near 80. There will be a couple of heavy showers and thunderstorms around tomorrow afternoon and into tomorrow night, perhaps even leading to some low-lying and poor drainage flooding below tomorrow night, 70. For Thursday, clouds will give way to some sunshine, 87 degrees. With Iraqi weather forecast, I'm Danielle Niddle. This is the John Steigerwald Show on AM 1250, The Answer. Talking to Molly Hemingway, she's the co-author of Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh confirmation of the future of the Supreme Court. A couple more minutes here with uh, Molly. I, um, I, I'm just wondering, I, I, at the time when it happened, um, I couldn't remember it ever being used before, but I, I, at least in a, in a major situation like this, is the, the precedent that was set by the insertion of uh, Brett Kavanaugh's high school yearbook into the proceedings uh, uh, for a guy who's what forty-seven years old or whatever he is. Um, that's a that's a nice precedent, right? We're going to yes, go there now. Um, you, apparently, I don't know. It was there was no stupid joke too small or minor no. for uh, the senators not to ask him about it during the during that reopened testimony. And you have these absurd moments in the congressional record where they're asking him what boofing means, and he yeah. says it's about. You know, flatulence. <laughs> you know, just things. It's just such a debasing of the entire uh, confirmation process. But um, yes, it was well, apparently that was that was needing scrutiny. Did any of this um, stuff like this, like this, seeing a high school yearbook, 
be talked about for more than 30 seconds in a, in a proceeding like this. Did any of it, like, uh, shock the Democrats? Did, they, did any of it embarrass them? Did any of them tell you that they, they felt embarrassed by any of it? Um, some of the senators that we spoke to reported that there was some embarrassment on the Senate Judiciary Committee about how they'd handled it. Uh, nobody was particularly covered in glory on one side of the aisle. and uh, But they, I think actually... There hasn't been a public reckoning of what was done. Nobody was held accountable for leaking this letter that was supposedly uh, to be kept confidential or for circumventing the process by which such letters are kept. Um, nobody was held accountable for violating any number of Senate norms and procedures like Cory Booker releasing committee confidential information or Kamala Harris suggesting that she had information that uh, – Brett Kavanaugh was committing perjury when she clearly had no such information. That would not be permitted in a court of law. Um, and how did Kavanaugh's team uh, handle the gang rape bombshell when it was delivered by Michael Avenatti, which turned out to, that, uh, to be just meaningless and stupid? They, but Yeah, they actually felt like that was a turning point because they felt like everything that was being thrown at them was crazy. But once you're getting an allegation like that, which is clearly absurd, or I should say clear to everyone but the uh, corporate media that ran wild with it. Um, it, it he became a presidential candidate. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was evident to a lot of people that this was part of a sort of an operation as yeah. opposed to a reasonable thing to suspect. Now, this, when, when someone like Avenatti comes forward with that, is that Michael Avenatti um, doing it on his own, or is he is he encouraged by the Democrats? There are reasons to believe that there was coordination between each of the accusers. Um, each story that would come out would sort of lay little little um, hints at a story that was about to come. And so you see in the New Yorker story, which was about the second allegation, which is kind of a crazy uh, woman who doesn't have a very good memory and spends eight days with Democratic attorneys to recover a memory about something that might have happened. She wasn't sure. It, it drops little hints of what becomes the Avenatti allegation. So there is evidence of coordination, but um, but I think one person put it best when he said that the, that of the three or four people most responsible for Brett Kavanaugh being confirmed, Michael Avenatti is one of them. Yeah. He did such a poor job with his his participation in the campaign that it ended up turning tide in favor of, of uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Hey, congratulations yeah. on the book. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love talking to you, John. Bye. All right, bye. See ya. <laughs> And that's Molly Hemingway, the author, co-author of Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. We'll be right back. Dennis Prager explains the people we're fighting against. Fox News reporter was reporting on the win of the American soccer team, and then behind him were fans of the team, and they all started screaming, F. Trump. The low caliber of the hatred of the president, of people who hate the president, is really, it is remarkable. Is it true for every single person who hates the president? No, it isn't. Is it true for the great majority? I think it is. The Dennis Prager Show, weekdays at noon, right before Sebastian Gorka at 3 on AM 1250. The Answer. We're talking to Rocky Blyer. He's involved with the Miracle League of Moon Township and the construction of a Miracle League athletic field. The fields are designed to make it possible for kids with special needs to play sports. Every child, no matter what, the situation deserves a chance to be able to play, to compete, and have a place that's safe, takes care of needs, that's organized. This will be the fourth Miracle League field that will be built. Now we've got four places to be able to travel, and so it broadens the whole interest of sports. It's just terrific for a community to do that. There's a buddy system I thought was pretty impressive. What's that all about? Kids with special needs have a buddy, a child who's in school. It's like having an older brother or sister involved with you, so it's really good, and that everybody has human dignity of being able to participate. The website is miraclesandmoon.org. Check it out and let's help make this dream a reality. Hey, Rocky, thanks, and uh, we'll be talking hey. to you again about this project. Appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Thank you for having me. All right, man. Take it, it easy. Thanks. Rocky Blyer, right, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the John Staggerwald Show on AM 1250. The answer. Well, I'm a dog guy. I own two golden retrievers. Uh, actually, they own me. I, I think the golden retriever, by the way, is uh, God's most perfect creature, and I've done some dog training, so I'm always interested in good dog stories, and I think I found a really good one, and it could mean that dogs will be saving a lot of lives. 
Dr. Thomas Quinn is the lead author of a study that was done at Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine, and he joins us now. Dr. Quinn, thanks for being here. Oh, I'm glad to be with you. So what's the, uh, what is the big news from the study? Uh, the big news is uh, that we're really able to prove that dogs do have the ability to uh, detect cancer, uh, and usually uh, our early indications are that they're going to be able to detect cancer at a lot earlier stage than a lot of the current methods that are being used. And uh, this, the study that you did uh, the, 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 that caught my eye, the story that caught my eye specifically was uh, dealing with lung cancer and uh, their yes. ability to detect lung cancer early. How do they do that? Okay. In the study that uh, you read, uh, we used dogs to detect lung cancer uh, in blood serum where we got samples of the patient's blood and was able to t detect that way. Uh, actually, since we've done that study, we have actually moved on and we are studying the dog's ability to uh, detect cancer uh, by the patient's exhaled breath. Wow. So we, uh, this way we can just have send the patient a, a simple a uh, paper mask that's very similar to what you could buy in any drugstore. The patient puts on the mask, breathes into the mask just regularly for about three to five minutes, takes off the mask, puts it into a mailing envelope and mails it back to us. And you could be in another state and we will get the uh, mask back. We'll cut a little piece out of the center part of the mask and present it to the dogs and they'll be able to tell you whether that patient has cancer or not. That is amazing. Now, so that's what you would do with these dogs. Uh, minus the dogs, uh, absent the dogs, what would happen? How, how do you, what, what, in other words, what, what is that replacing, that procedure? Okay, the most common uh, diagnosis for lung cancer is the chest x-ray. Mm -hmm. And also more recent studies uh, show that uh, they've been using uh, uh, CT scans, uh, what they call low-dose CT scans, in order to uh, detect uh, uh, lung cancer. However, the chest x-ray has a lot of false negatives. In other words, they miss a lot of the cancers. And the uh, CT scans actually is too sensitive that uh, they have too many false positives where people, th where they think that people have cancer and turns out not to be. Whereas the dogs are much more accurate than either the CT or the, MR or the chest x-ray. That's amazing. Now, how, how accurate are they? I mean, do you have a percentage? Uh, we're right around 97% accurate wow. study that we did. Uh, actually, since then, we have... Did, we're uh, actually just finishing up another study that hasn't been published yet where we're working on uh, breast cancer. And we have four dogs doing this, and two of the dogs were 100% were effective, and the other two dogs were about 98 to 99% effective. And what's the procedure with uh, breast cancer? Breast cancer, usually the person goes to have a mammography, and the CDC says the mammographies are about 87% effective. Mm -hmm. and, and how does the so, dog how does the dog detect it? Just by by sniffing the area? Just by sniffing the uh, a piece a section from the mask, what we do is we have oh still done uh, with the breath even for breast oh, cancer. Yes. Breast cancer is done with the breast. Uh, we are getting ready to start working on colorectal cancer, and we're going to you also use breath for that. And that seems it's a much easier sample to get than somebody's blood. Mm -hmm. And it and our studies are showing that it's just as effective as doing the blood. We're talking to Dr. Thomas Quinn. He's the lead author of a study being done or has been done at the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine. Um, this is amazing. How big of a deal is this? I mean, uh, this is, is this like um, earth shattering? Uh, it has a potential to be earth shattering. Uh, we have to do larger studies. Uh, I mean, these are early studies and they involved. Uh, you know, usually 200 samples, uh, 
which is enough to give you a pretty good idea, but we need to do studies with thousands of samples to be able to tell just how effective they are and whether other things interfere. Let's say we have somebody who has lung cancer and they're undergoing chemotherapy. Now, is that chemotherapy agents going to interfere with the dog's ability to detect any recurrence of the cancer? Uh-huh. These are the type of these are the type of things we still have to find out. Mm-hmm. We know they can detect the cancer, but we have to find out these other things: whether drugs will affect it, whether uh, if the patient has another condition, let's say they're a diabetic, mm-hmm. is that going to affect the dog's ability? So we still have a lot more studies to do before this becomes mainstream medicine. Well, you're a doctor who takes care of humans, but how impressed are you with these dogs and their noses? Wildly impressed. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, th- these dogs, not only can they detect the scent, but they remember the scent. Mm-hmm. That was makes them so good. So uh, when they go back, they they remember exactly what they're smelling for. Yeah. And we have right now we're training dogs to actually be specialists. Like the dogs that uh, detect the lung cancer are different from the dogs that detect the breast cancer. And the we beagles. Are the, you're using beagles for all of these, or different. Uh, we're using beagles uh, for all of these. Um, we do have a couple of basset hounds that we that are just getting old enough that they're going to be entering the program, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of high hopes for them. Uh, we tried it on a, a bloodhound, which he was very, very good as far as detecting, but he just didn't have the temperament. Uh, to uh, do this on a regular basis, and we've tried some mixed breeds. So we're right now we're dealing primarily with basset with our beagles, but we are starting to experiment with other forms of dogs. I've done some training myself uh, uh, professionally, but very little. Um, but so I, and I, I've taken a course in dog training, so I I know more than the average person does about training dogs. I, the idea that they could, so I know what how how much patience you would have to have to get to the point where the dog would react the way he, he or she is supposed to react to this. I mean, I, I just, I remember I, I was uh, up at our uh, vacation home, and I was throwing a tennis ball to my uh, golden retriever. I'd throw it down the stairs, he'd run down to the beach, and he'd run back up, and, and he wouldn't leave me alone. So I faked like I threw the ball down on the beach. I took the ball and I ran back behind me, and there was a coffee can that the little kids played with that that I had the plastic sealer cap. And I the dog was down on the beach. I put the ball in the the coffee can, put the sealer, you know, the the, the cap on top of the, the plastic thing on it. And he came up. He looked at me for like five seconds and walked right back to the thing and stood in front of it and said, "Hey, the tennis ball's in here." I mean, it's oh, it's, yes. it's amazing what they can do. Oh, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, we've already taken some of these samples and put them underwater, and the dogs were able to detect them underwater. We have, um, and they, they just take a second. They, you know, they, they don't have to sit there and sniff and, and wonder about right. it. They just take one or two little sniffs, and bam, they know if it is or is not. And their other, their other talent, from what I understand, is that they can separate smells out. If it, what I was told is if you and I were to smell food cooking in a kitchen, we would smell the combination of all the smells, would make one smell. The dog smells all the different smells that make the one smell that we smell, if you understand what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Just like the beagles, for instance, have about 225 uh, million uh, sensors for detect odor, Mm -hmm. whereas the humans have about 5 million. Wow. So we, yeah. we're talking about 225 versus 5. Yeah, and I, your... it's unbelievable. And a guy told me that, because uh, I've asked, I'm a, kind of fascinated with dogs, a guy uh, who was involved in um, explosives and working at you know security told me that you could take a bullet, one bullet, put it in a coffee can full of coffee, and uh, the dog would be able to smell the gunpowder in the bullet inside the can of coffee. He, and and with, with no problem, or you could take that bullet and put it in your bi- largest suitcase, 
packed full of clothes, putting one bullet in the middle of it. That dog, when he's you come past him at the airport, he'll sit and look at you. You got a you got something in there. I see or I smell. So they're right. they're amazing. Um, and That's so go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, that's exactly the same way we teach them, uh, just like they with a drug interdiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dog is trained to sit when they detect right. the odor. Mm-hmm. And this is what we do. We put the we have little canisters with the uh, samples around the room, and then the dog goes from one canister to the next canister. And if there's nothing in it, no cancer, he just keeps on hitting and to the next one, but if the dog detects cancer, then they immediately sit in front of it. And and then what do you give them? A, uh, is it a food treat they give them? Yes, we usually give them a food treat. Now, are There's you... different ways. Some people treat uh, will uh, train them, but give them a toy or something. Right, right. Uh, we we have used the uh, the. Uh, dog treat as their reward. Yeah, a lot of the explosive sniffing uh, uh, trainers use use like a tennis ball or some kind of a ball. So right. are, mm-hmm. so you are a human doctor, but are, are you, how, how much have you been able to observe the actual training of the dogs? Uh, quite a bit. I've, uh, I get up there whenever I have a chance. Now, we work with a group called Biosense DX, and it's a dog training uh, and research facility. Uh, so they actually have the dogs, and they're just about 12 miles away from our college, the osteopathic college here in Bradenton, Florida. Um, now, um, what is it that the dog smells that, that alerts him that there's the scent that he gets rewarded for? Boy, I wish I knew that answer. <laughs> uh, that That is the golden grail uh, that we are looking for uh to try to identify what those uh, biomarkers are mm-hmm. and you can be assured we are looking for them as i know other researchers and other facilities throughout the world are doing so we're not the only ones uh doing this uh but uh i i think hopefully we will be the ones that will find it but the diff the, the, is the scent that uh, and are you able to tell this is the scent that the dog picks up for lung cancer different from what he would pick up for um, breast cancer. Yes, it is. So they can you, you so you could actually train a dog to just find breast cancer. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're training the dog to just find breast cancer or just find lung cancer or whatever cancer we're working on, uh, lung and breast. Now we have also trained some dogs to pick up the general cancer odor. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of scary because if somebody sends us a sample and we say, I, I hate to get a report, you have cancer, but we don't know where it is. Oh, boy. That'd be, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, our ultimate goal is as we're able to get uh, more and more dogs trained. And right now we have about 30 dogs that have been trained to detect cancer. We would bring the, get a sample in. We'd give it to the first dog who would de- determine whether there is any cancer in there at all with a general cancer odor and then present it to each of the specialty dogs. Send it present it to the dogs that do the breast cancer and okay no the patient doesn't have breast cancer then send it to the dogs that detect lung cancer and so on and so forth and but that's going to take a little while we're not quite to the point where we can do that yet okay so how who discovered this i mean who's was it something that somebody stumbled upon or who came up with the idea that maybe a dog would be able to detect things that are multi-million dollar research and, and all the stuff that we've put together can't do okay the original idea was from a uh, woman by the name of heather uh, junkira and she is the director of research at the biosense and she got the idea because she was a dog trainer and has been doing this uh, for many many years uh, and she her father died of lung cancer mm-hmm and the the primary problem was that his de- cancer was detected late. So then she knew the cap- capability of these dogs, so she started to work with this, and then she got other people interested, including the NECOM. Uh, so now we're working at this and are making a real research project out of it. I have a little less than a minute left, uh, Doctor, and I, I just what does this do now for the ability... Uh, to detect the cancers and then affect the treatment and stop the spread of the cancer. What, I mean, what, how does this make it better besides just not having to go through all the equipment and, and uh, testing? 
Just by being okay. able to do it with the dog. As with almost anything, early detection of cancer, uh, right now, the state of medical science, we can cure most cancers if they're caught at an early enough stage. Mm -hmm. So the important thing is to catch the cancer early. And if we can catch that cancer early, then we can get the patient into treatment when their prognosis is much, much better and their chance of survival uh, is much greater. It's great work that you're doing. I really appreciate your uh, you being here, and uh, please keep me posted on this. I love this stuff. If anything new comes up, send it to our producer, Aaron, and uh, we'll get you back on to talk about it. I love this. Okay, fine. I'll take you up on that. Thank you very much, Doctor, and uh, hope to have you on again. See you later. Okay, thank you. Right. Bye and, now. All right, we'll be right back. You ain't nothing but a Well, he ain't nothing but a hound dog. I uh, got a couple minutes left here, and I just want to tell you that sometimes when you get to be a little older, there you uh, remember th exactly where you were on a certain date when things happen. I know exactly where I was 49 years ago to the minute. I was on my way. I, my, I probably had already parked the car uh uh, somewhere near Three Rivers Stadium for the first Pirates game ever played there. July 16th, 1970. I was a college kid, um, and it was a big, big deal. I mean, I had grown up going to games at Forbes Field, and uh, this the, this new stadium, I mean, if, if you are not old enough to remember what it was like at Forbes Field and what old ballparks were like and what a shocking thing it was, uh, to um, actually go to a Pirates game somewhere other than an old ballpark and go to this round plastic place with artificial turf, a scoreboard with lights. There were no video replays, but it had. Um, they would do it with lights. They would have the, the face of the player who was coming up the bat. It's an amazing thing. And, I mean, it was just absolutely stunning to come through the entrance and go to your seat and look at what the new Pirates field looked like. It was. It couldn't be more different from what we had all seen up to that minute. But the thing that sticks out most for me, aside from the just the overwhelming uh, shock of the difference, was the uniforms. The Pirates came running out. They wore their regular uniforms for the warm-ups. They came running out for the game in double-knit uniforms, which had never been seen before. It looked like, for everybody who uh, saw it for the first time, like they ran out onto the field in pajamas. Pretty soon, every team in the in the major leagues had uniforms like that. But that was as stunning as anything, uh, as, as seeing the Pirates looking completely different in those uh, new uniforms, which I uh, grew to hate and also grew to hate Three Rivers Stadium because it was a terrible place to watch baseball. Couldn't wait for a new one. Now they got a good one and a terrible team. The John Steigerwald Show is a production of AM 1250 The Answer and Salem Media Group. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.